Aaron's going to preach from Psalm 69 today. So um, if you would, turn to that. Um, it should be in the, the Bible in front of you on four, page 482. Pull it up on your phone, whatever it would be. It'll be on the screen. But Psalm 69, if you would stand as we read God's Word together, and then Aaron will come in and preach God's Word to us. It's a little long one, so hold on. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the floods sweep over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What did I not steal, must I now restore? O oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O oh Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am distressed. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment, and may they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on light, or set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people should dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. The word of the Lord. You can have a seat. I'm going to call Aaron up here and pray for him. Father, speak to us by your word. As we open up your word, Lord, help us 
have just a growing hunger for it. And Lord, let us not be surprised if we're challenged or offended or confused. Um, ultimately, you want to encourage us and point us to Christ, Lord, but, but just open our hearts so we can hear your word and just respond as you would wish. And just use Aaron to do that, to lead us in that, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, Karsh Church. Uh, I would like to start off our time here this morning uh, with a little bit of confession on my end. Um, I think I may be addicted to technology. I know. A millennial who's on their phone too much, very shocking. Um, but what makes me say this? It's not that little notification that pops up around this time every week telling me, how much my screen time was. Uh, it's not even that I've been playing the same game on my phone for like six years. And it's not entirely, I don't think, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, even though I'm sure he was working in this scenario where I came to my senses. Um, if you were in your 20s, if you're in, the, in that 20-something stage of life, maybe you have kids or family friends who are, then you know that we're in the middle of peak wedding season right now. Uh, several years ago, it seemed like my wife, Caitlin, and I, uh, we were going to weddings you know, every other week, all throughout the months of June, July, August, May. Uh, anyway, it's that time of year again. We got a few wedding invitations in the mail recently, and I was looking at it. Yeah, if this is the wedding invitation. I was looking at it. Oh, this is adorable. So great. I want to look closer at the ring that the bride had. And so I took the wedding invitation. I did one of these. <laughs> On the physical card that came in the mail, I tried to pinch to zoom um, a literal piece of paper. So I kind of had to take a step back and think, I might have a problem. I might be on my phone too much. But uh, I actually, I kind of want to get us all in on that madness for a little bit. Uh, we've been in John chapter 15 for the last couple weeks. Pastor Kevin has been preaching through a post-pandemic series from that chapter. You know, what have we learned over the last year and a half? What might God be telling us? Where might God be leading us as we come out the other side of this thing? And each week we read through John 15... We come across verse 25 where Jesus says, But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. And here Jesus is quoting from our psalm this morning, Psalm 69. So here's what we're going to do. Every, you know, grab your Bible and we're going to zoom in on that verse. We're going to go all the way back to Psalm 69 and explore it together. We're going to see what it means for David, as he's writing it, uh, how does it imply? How does it apply to us in our increasingly post-COVID context? And then, how does Jesus fulfill this passage in its fullness? And so, if you're like me, uh, the Bible can certainly be confusing sometimes. You know, there's some awesome yet wild stuff that goes on in here. And the further along you read, uh, the more and more the Bible references things that happened earlier on. And it can be a lot to keep up with. Uh, but I want to give you a useful tool 
for your own Bible study at home. I think this will really help, especially if you're reading the New Testament, to understand better what the authors are trying to say. Most times when a New Testament writer references, you know, quotes a verse from the Old Testament, he actually has more in mind than that one single verse. He wants to call back the whole passage, the whole story, the whole psalm to our mind. And so, next time you're at home studying your Bible and you see a reference in the Gospels or something that Paul writes, you know, go back. Go back to the Old Testament. Read that whole thing. And it should make your understanding of the New Testament passage much clearer. That's all to say that we're not just going to focus in on that one verse that Jesus quotes in John 15. John wants us to take a look back at the whole of Psalm 69. And you may have heard a few lines as you notice Pastor Kevin read through the passage. That there are other lines or other parts of the psalm that mirror the life of Jesus. So let's take a whole look. Let's take a look at the whole thing. It's pretty long, so we won't have time to examine every single verse or every single image in detail. But if you break it down, there are five main movements in this passage. In verses 1 through 12, we have the plight of the psalmist. In verse 13 through 18, we have the prayer of the psalmist. And then 19 through 21 is going to be the persecution that he goes through. 28 or 22 through 28 will be his plea to God. And finally, the last seven verses will be his praise to God. So plight, prayer, persecution, plea, and praise. And to make them all start with the letter P since we're in the book of the Psalms. Uh, but anyway, let's do three laps around the song each time with a little bit different perspective. First off, we'll see what it, what it means to David when he wrote it. What was he going through and how did it affect him? Second, how can we sing this song today in our context in light of everything going on in our world? And then finally, how does Jesus fulfill the song? Showing himself to be the better David and the perfect king. So, those first several verses, they give us a pretty clear indication of David's plight, don't they? Uh, he doesn't leave us with too many complicated images. There's not uh, any oily beards or dewy mountains to talk about. He starts by describing this overwhelming flood that he's beginning to drown in. And then he goes right in to tell us exactly what he means. It's un an uncountable amount of enemies, and they hate him, and they want to destroy him by spreading lies about him. But why the hate? What has driven these enemies to do this to David? Verses 9 through 12 give us that explanation. David has a burning passion for the glory of God. Zeal for the temple, God's house, and God's place of worship is driving David to do things like humble himself, to fast and mourn and repent of his sins. But doing these things only makes him the laughingstock of his community. Because, you see, ultimately, these enemies aren't primarily David's enemies. They're primarily God's enemies. And when David aligns himself with God and with God's commands, when he gives his allegiance to God, the battle lines are redrawn, and those who oppose God now begin to oppose David. So then, what's David's prayer? 
Well, I'm pretty sure it's the same prayer that you and I would pray in this situation. David prays, God save me. If it's the right time, be the faithful and loving God that I know you are. Get me out of this pit, this flood, this overwhelming mess. Does that prayer sound familiar to any of you? I know it does for me. But then, what's the next movement of this psalm? It's not the praise, not yet. What happens after David's prayer is actually more persecution. Verse 20, even though he cries out for salvation, he receives no comfort and no pity. Only more of the shame and the pain that he had already been experiencing. Even though David prays for provision from God, he receives poison from his enemies. And all that leads us to the next movement. It's David's plea. And now these verses, they can be difficult for us to read sometimes. Let's skim over some of the things that David asks God to do to his enemies. In verses 22 through 28, he says, Make their dinner table a snare, a trap. Pour your burning anger on them. Make their camps be empty and desolate. Let them be blotted out from the book of the living. It's intense. Uh, now, if David could, could have read the New Testament, he'd probably be like, what? It says you need to pray for your enemies. Uh, not quite what is in mind there. But maybe it seems so intense to us because we haven't always been able to grasp what's fully going on in this situation. David's not just praying that a bunch of people he doesn't like are going to be hurt. David is the righteous sufferer here. Someone who's aligned himself with God, and now he's feeling the brunt of evil in our world because of it. David's prayer is, it's a prayer for justice. He's asking God, God, there are evil men who do evil things to your people in this world. It's not right. It's not just. You need to step in and put a stop to this. These are people who want to defame God's name and deface his good creation. And God is the only one who can step in and set things right. Yet, unfortunately still for David, the last movement of the song, the movement of praise, it begins with him saying that he's still in pain. God hasn't yet stepped in. But in spite of that, David knows that God is faithful and that one day, he will set things right. In the midst of his affliction, David continues to worship, and he continues to lead his people in the hope that one day their home, Zion, will be restored, and God's people will live there safely. So, how, how then can we read this song? How can we sing this song in light of our current cultural moment? Let's walk through the psalm again. We'll think about our plight, our prayer, our persecution, our pain, our plea, and our praise. I think our plight, our plights have been pretty obvious over the last year and a half. We've had the pandemic, we've had political division and strife, and then we've had issues of racial injustice. So, going back to those first few verses, has it felt like a flood Had the last year and a half? Felt like you were stuck in the mud with no way out? 
that he had been tired and weary, waiting for God to show up, thinking that he might not come to our rescue? If so, then this song is for you to sing. Now, Cars, uh, we're not perfect, and I don't think anyone has ever tried to say that, that we are perfect. Um, and our church, as a church and as individuals, we've made an effort to respond to the pandemic in a specific way. And we've uh, you know, had important conversations about race and political things in our congregation amongst our brothers and sisters. And you know what? Um, we've received criticism for that. We've received pushback for some of those things. Uh, some people who were a part of our church family have decided they no longer want to be a part of our church family because of that. Um, and now, I won't go so far as to say that those are our enemies. You know, certainly most of them are still our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then for all of us as individuals, the last year has probably been a time of strain being put on either our family or friend relationships. So you might wonder, why do and say these things if it's just going to lead us to more heartache? And the answer, I hope, is back in verse 9, kind of like David's. I hope zeal for King Jesus is what's consuming us. I hope all the precautions we've taken, the sermons we've preached, the conversations that we've had with friends and family, the posts we've made or responded to on social media have all come from that place. Looking at the example of Jesus, wanting to love our neighbors and our community, and being willing to lay down the things that we prefer or the things that benefit us for the good of others. And real quick, uh, before we move on to the next movement of this song, can I encourage you guys real quick? Uh, take, a, take a look at verse 4. Take a closer look at verse 4. The psalm says, More than the hairs of my head are those that hate me without cause. You might be familiar with Jesus' words from Luke 12 where he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Trust, church, um, the floods may have seemed overwhelming. Your enemies may have seemed incalculable over the last year and a half. But if God can count the number of hairs on your head, then he can keep track of your enemies and your afflictions. He's known where you are, and he's loved you every single day of the last year and a half. So, we know our plight. But what's been our prayer? Probably, on many days, it's been that relatable prayer of David. We say, save me, God, please. Don't let the waters overtake me. I need your love. I need your faithfulness to make it through the pandemic, through the election cycle, through the protests or the riots or the court proceedings. And what's unfolding now? Well, I got the blessing. It looks like we're kind of starting to be on the back end of this pandemic, even though there's still a long way to go in a lot of other parts of the world. And there's still a long way to go in terms of the political 
strife in our culture. And there's still a lot of work to be done, both inside and outside the church, when it comes to issues of race and justice. And like David, sometimes I look at the news or the, my social media feed, and I feel despair. I feel a lack of pity and comfort. And to be honest, sometimes it just feels like consuming poison. And I'm guessing we have a similar gut reaction like David, and we may even have a similar plea towards God. Um, but before we go there, I have to leave you with a cliffhanger on this lap around the psalm. We'll come back to our plea and our praise, but before we can properly plead, before we can properly praise God, we have to see how Jesus fulfills the psalm. And this is where things start to get really awesome. Remember in John 15, this is Jesus' last evening with his disciples and his final teachings to them. He references Psalm 69, knowing full well what's in store for him over the next couple of days. So let's walk through this psalm again. One more time. What is Jesus' plight? Verse 4. It's the one who directly quotes. They, the innumerable enemies, they hated me without cause. When Jesus is done speaking to his disciples, a group of Roman soldiers and religious leaders, they're going to come and they're going to carry him away. And then after a night in a kangaroo court, he'll be condemned by crowds. And Jesus knows what's in store for him, remember. So what's his prayer? It's recorded in the other Gospels for us. He says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup. It's a prayer of deliverance that's similar to David's. Look at verse 15 of the psalm. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. My friends, that for David, that is death and burial language. David's asking God, don't let me die. Don't let me be buried in the earth. And it's Jesus' prayer as well. Please, let it pass. And again, God doesn't answer this prayer with a yes. The persecution and the peril, they continue for Jesus. Remember how his life progresses. He's beaten by soldiers. And he's hung on a cross. And in John 19, we have another direct reference to this psalm. Verse 21. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Now, so far, it seemed pretty clear how Jesus is the one who this psalm was pointing to all along. He and David, they have similar plights, similar prayers, similar persecution. But it's Jesus' plea where we see a major departure from Psalm 69. But don't worry, don't worry. It's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean that John got it wrong. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with our Bible. Uh, John is using this contrast to highlight something unique, something special that's happening in Jesus, that's happening while he's on the cross. And it's going to change the way that we plead and the way that we praise on this side of the cross. Uh, one of the commentators I read this week, he said it like this. 
the juxtaposition of David cursing his tormentors and Jesus praying for his brings out the gulf between the type and the anti-type. That's just a Bible nerd way of saying it shows us how much greater Jesus is than David. King David, the great King David, Jesus is still the better king. He's the better David. Uh, we saw David pleading for God to bring justice and restore goodness to this world by punishing and destroying his enemies. But what do we see from Jesus in the midst of his crucifixion? For starters, Jesus is actually answering David's prayer. David doesn't know it, but when he prayed for God's justice, he was praying for Jesus. He was praying for the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he dealt the decisive blow to sin and death, to evil and injustice. Now, we know from this last year, sin and death are still around. They're still fighting. We still have to experience them. But I want you to know this morning, because of what Jesus has done, there is no chance that they can win in the end. It can't happen. That's what it is finished means. The second thing we see from Jesus is another statement. Where David prays for his enemies' destruction, Jesus prays for his enemies' forgiveness. In Luke 32, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. So because of what Jesus does on the cross, the way we plead for justice actually changes. And it changes in two ways. First, it changes the outlook of our prayers. Because of what Jesus has done, we know that our prayers for ultimate justice, for ultimate reconciliation and restoration, they will be answered with a yes. They will be fulfilled. And then secondly, it changes the way we pray because our primary hope is not that human evil ends by needing to be destroyed, but that God would call those people to repentance and faith. They would turn from their evil and leave it behind. That's, our fo that's the focal point of how we pray when we see evil in our world. By God's grace, we were once someone's enemies, but had been made right with him. How can we now pray for the destruction of our enemies when we, who are enemies with God and our neighbors, have been given God's grace? It certainly makes us have to wait through the suffering, that's for sure. But think of it like this. Before I knew ways to maybe slow the spread of the coronavirus, I was probably spreading it before I knew how to slow it. Before you realized that racism was wrong, you didn't know how your unjust attitudes, actions, systems were hurting other people. And before we realized how our politics could help people, we were probably using them to hurt people. And before we were forgiven sons and daughters of God, we were his enemies. With the cross, God's forgiveness, it leads us to praise. Look at verse 29. The start of this movement of praise. 
Jesus, afflicted and in pain, dead and in the grave, experienced God's salvation. He was raised from the dead. And then on top of that, raised up into heaven, seated next to the Father, to be the king of all creation. This gives us reason to praise his name with a song, to magnify him with thanksgiving, because we know that Jesus will not just restore Zion, but all of creation, and that his people will live forever with him in that kingdom. Cars Church, my friends, if you believe that, that Jesus died for our enemy, that Jesus died for our evil and injustice, that he was raised from the dead, and that he was raised up to be the king of all creation, then you are a Christian. And if you're a baptized believer in this auditorium, I want to invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your work this morning, for Jesus, who shows us who you are so clearly. God, I pray this week we would remember him in our sufferings, for his sufferings and his victory, that that would change the way we live in the middle of our affliction, that it would change the way we cry out to you, that it would change the way we love others and the way we look to the future with hope instead of despair. God, as we share this meal together, I pray that we would remember and celebrate all that you've done for us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.